I'll usually say unique and innovative, customer-centric, valuable, solve an ongoing problem, and be clear. The good killer propositions are clear. It's clear who they're for, clear what they do. It's, it's clear how they do it. And the messaging is, all of the messaging from top to bottom is clear. That's the one kind of overlapping thing I see. With the other things, sometimes it's they're interchangeable. Sometimes it's just, oh, it's a really customer-centric product, but it's not super unique. Or it's a really unique product, but it's not maybe super innovative. It's a unique branding, but it's an existing product or an existing concept, existing problems. But the killer propositions have all of those things and they're, and they're clear. Hello, Jazz. It is a pleasure having you in the show. How are you today? Great. Thanks, Monica. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. And yeah, having a great day so far. I'm really looking forward to this chat because we're going to talk about propositions. And there's this thing about building product. That building product is complex, but defining a strong proposition, it's almost like, it's not that it's impossible, but it's like mission impossible. Oh, but how do we do it? <laughs> and that's the topic for today. So really looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Great use then, of the word mission impossible as well, because I think we're probably going to talk about purpose and mission. So nice, exact, nice pun. Exactly. Yes, nice pun. <laughs> Okie dokie. But before we go into it, I could getting to know our guests as people because like we're in the industry, we have careers, life is not always easy. So it's also good to learn not just how to navigate work and product and fintech and purpose, but like ourselves. So I want to start with a few questions on mindset about you. So let's start with how do you deal with the difficult times where the difficult times can be those days that you're frustrated for no reason, you know, that it's like, I'm angsty or proper difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. This is difficult to answer because it's going to sound a bit like, like a bro science, Joe rogan podcasty thing, but I'll go for a walk or run or recycle or I'll get to the gym and like box for a bit. Yes. So lots of like physical activity. And I think it's physical activity. Maybe distract my frontal lobe puts me into a state of like deep consciousness where I'm just concentrating on one thing, which is running or walking or cycling, punching a bag or hiking. So for me, what works for me is fresh air, exercise, and then a cold shower. Again, Whoa. that sounds really like bro science or ice baths, but it works for me. But then sometimes I will go out and have a have a glass of wine or probably about four. Yeah. And regret it the next day. But it's good. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of, I, I mix it up. But exercise works for me, I think. It doesn't necessarily work for everyone. It's you know, courses, but courses really. Yeah, but I like that because I was thinking about this like recently. I was like, oh, so exactly. Went for a hike. It's go for a walk, just fresh air. It's like boxing. Yeah. I was thinking I have my box, yeah. boxing gloves as well. I was like, nice. just go to the gym and punch the bag. That's it. It's, it feels so good to just like punch the yeah. bag. 
Yeah, you tire yourself. I mean, you, yeah, you tire yourself out a bit, and I think maybe, maybe with the jet lag, it resets your body clock, so you tire yourself out. You feel you feel tired, go to sleep, wake up at normal hour. And again, bit more bro science, but like sunlight, going out and getting sunlight. What I've realised is when I'm in in a house, like in a room with limited sunlight for a day or even two days, where I'm just working away, mm-hmm. makes a massive difference. I I feel like oh, I feel a bit off. Like what do I feel? flagging a little bit or go for a walk sit in the sun for just five minutes just get some sunlight and then come back and i'm like oh i feel yeah i feel a bit better now yeah none of this is i have so a lot of scientific evidence here yeah it's so exactly. we check out some other podcasts on melatonin <laughs> and sunlight and yeah. exercise and that's what works for me good it works cool I like yeah. that. And I like starting in that way that it's like the tough times because they are inevitable. That it's just part of life. Yeah. So the other thing is you've got a successful career, then you've ventured into building your own consulting firm. So you've tried different things. If you were to look back at younger self, what is the piece of advice that you wish somebody gave you back then but didn't? Yeah. It's yeah, so it's not but didn't, it's they did, but very subtly. So I mm. got this advice from, you know, I had loads of great managers from Citibank to Schroders and Fidelity and Hermes, which is one of my earlier companies. But it's that hard work alone doesn't lead to a strong and prosperous career. Like it's not just, you can't just work hard and then expect to become VP in six years. Like that doesn't. It, it doesn't usually equate directly. Um, and I think maybe this is like a cultural thing where I first, when I graduated, I thought, oh, just work hard, do great work, but put hours in and be there and be visible and that's it. And what a few of my managers at the time were telling me was, oh, come to this networking event, come to this, come to this training thing we've got, come to this town hall thing we've got, come to... Come all, come to all these events, meet all these people, speak to these people, network with these people. And I, I was constantly saying, I'm too, I've got too much on. I need to do this. I've, I'm too busy. I've got, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to try and nail all these five projects in the space of seven weeks. And I was like, head down working and other people who were maybe work putting less hours in, but doing the networking thing and speaking to other people around different businesses and people above people horizontal will get further ahead. And I was like, oh, this is weird like i said it's visibility so it's not just hard work you have to still be visible working hard and being in a cupboard when no one sees you means that you're not necessarily going to get a promotion that you think you deserve or expect because no one can see you so usually these promotions are based on peers speaking to each other and saying oh who do you want for this role who do you want for that role it's a bit of hard work progress like attainment yearly review performance reviews but also there's a peer networking aspect to it. And I think I realized a bit later that, oh, I need to go. I need to go to these events with my boss so that they know I'm, I work in her team and we're together and we do, we do this as part of this project. And so it's not just her or sometimes him doing the, being the face of the project. Sometimes it's me. And then people will touch my face and name to the project and we can you get ahead that way as well. And again, it's not just hard work. So it, there were subtle hits yeah. and I, 
yeah, my head was Wish really down. I wasn't taking them on. I was like, oh, no, I'm too busy to do that. I realize now that. Really good piece of advice that even at our stage of the our careers, we can still change it, you know? That's what, that's what I say to lots of people who can maybe ask me, oh, what should I do? What should I do? Like, what, what do you like talking about? Like you're in fintech, you talk about this, you talk about this. Go write a blog, do a podcast. If, if that's your me- preferred media, write a blog, go to a conference, just go network with people, but just be out there and be more visible. And it doesn't have to be like every single day. It could be no. you want some up, you yes. go to a conference or what's some up, you write five bullet points about what I'm, what you're doing, what your thoughts are, your expertise on specific subjects. Definitely. And then I think you're a wise man <laughs> based on, because <laughs> you've got a lot of experience, made some errors, and now you're like, oh, okay, I should have done that. That's what I mean with yeah. wise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm a learned, I'm a learned person. Yeah. Yeah. So when you then ventured into building your consulting firm, you ventured into the entrepreneurial journey. What's the biggest lesson that you've had in this journey? Yeah. Again, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but I've maybe spoken to other people who their parents, uh, oh, their, one of their parents is not a UK, British resident originally. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in this country, but my parents have always said, oh, work hard and try and do this, try and do that. And so the biggest lesson I've learned is trying to do everything yourself, which is what I've, what I've tended to do, is not necessarily the best way of doing it. And it could cost you in the long run. It could cost you time. It could cost you effort. It could cost you opportunities. But like doing everything yourself, although you might think, oh, I'll do everything better than anyone else can because it's my thing. It's not necessarily beneficial in the long run. I think it's, so Winston Churchill quote, perfection is the enemy of progress. So I, I was always like, oh, I can, I'm a former engineer. I can do, I can build a website for myself. Fine. Oh, I can do a logo. There's loads of tools out there. I can do a logo or I can go with the company name. I was like, I was doing all that stuff myself. And I was like, I could be doing client work instead of it's, I'm spending time and effort doing this stuff that there are great design and web agencies out there and illustrators who actually have way more experience than I do in this thing. I don't know why I think I can do it better than them. And I get, maybe it's like an ownership thing or like trying to be perfect and only you can get it right. That's the biggest lesson that usually there are better people out there in specific subjects. You might be the best at like product or strategy or specific areas of fintech, but you're not also going to be the best designer. You're not also going to be the best like producer. You're not also going to be the best like events host. So picking and choosing some of those, those battles to to make sure it doesn't cost you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Biggest lesson. Pick your strengths, basically. Yes, exactly. Pick your strengths. Pick your strengths to pick your battles. Yeah, that's a good one. So moving more on topic, fintech and purpose. As a product person, how do you think we can build more purpose-driven fintechs? Yeah. It's a really good question. I think I sometimes use purpose and mission like synonymously. Mm-hmm. So I'll say purpose. Sometimes I'll say purpose. Sometimes I'll say mission. Usually when I say purpose, it's because there's a fintech that has more ethical 
reasoning behind them. And I'll say, oh, that's more purpose-driven, whereas everyone else is just generally mission-driven. But if we say purpose-driven generically, I think it's, I think it's giving more people the tools and resources so that they have the ability to build things themselves. Because like a story I, like a, a fintech story I'll usually use is, is the, the fintech born in 2011 from two founders' frustrations about getting paid in different currencies. You might see where this is going, Monica. So they're like, one getting paid in euros, but wants GBP. One getting paid in GBP wants euros. Exchange rates there, fees are there. So instead of going via normal channels, maybe Western Union, maybe going to a bank and exchanging, swapping currencies, they just give each other the currency that they need, fee-free, just transfer it, show up the bat every single month. And that P2P effect platform is now wise. <laughs> but it was born out of their problems that they were experiencing. And they, I'm not saying they knew them inside out, but they knew there was a problem there. They were speaking to other people to figure out how far does a problem reach. And then they, they just had the kind of experience from their respective backgrounds to go, let's build this thing. We've got some expertise in this area anyway. We know some of the frameworks, the process to go through. Let's build this, let's test this out, build an MVP, try and get that out to market, build a customer base and grow from there. I think it's giving more people like that but not necessarily the same background. It's giving more people with, with that direct frustration and those direct problems and the, and the inclination to solve them, the tools, the, the foundations, the framework, the process and the experience and maybe the knowledge to, to solve them themselves. And I think that's, yeah. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is there's a bunch of frustrated individuals who are, so I posted about that today, for example, I went hiking with friends here, all the international, and we were all talking about money and how difficult it is to be an international person and manage your money, end-to-end, pensions, credit score, mortgages. And everyone was frustrated. It was a real pain point for everyone. And what you're saying is that how we make things more purposeful is take individuals like that with a real pain point and empower them to go and build a company and be entrepreneurs. I like that. I like that yeah. approach. Yeah. Because they have the passion. It's a, yeah. and the pain point. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's, I think it's that if you experience it yourself, usually when there's tough times, like you said, the question at the top was, what are you doing in tough times? Usually during tough times of a business, you go back to, why am I doing this? Step back. If you're just solving a problem that you don't really relate to, you don't really understand, like it's a, bit, it's a bit more difficult. Lots of people do it. Loads of people do it, but it is a bit, it is a bit tougher. So I think it, it's easier to give that, give the tools, the knowledge and the support to people who are resilient to it and have that purpose, that inherent purpose, because it's a problem they're facing every single day or problem that they or someone they know based on a regular basis, giving them the tools to do it. It's a lot easier than trying to instill purpose in someone else and trying to say, this is why you should care and build this company. It's, it doesn't. It's almost impossible. It's exactly. That's mission impossible. Like, that is not, mission impossible. That is mission impossible. Some people could do it because they're like, oh, this is, I see the market here. There's going to be so much money to be made. 
And some people use that as a motivation. But I'd say that's, you know, that's not really purpose. It's not purpose. Driven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If the purpose is to be yeah. rich, then yeah, it's purpose driven. But then I would say that's no, purpose. That's not what I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So talking about the journey, what is your journey? Can you tell us a little bit about Mitsul and the journey? How did it come to life? Yeah, so I think, I, yeah, I touched on my early career. I started out as a, a computer, computer science grad. I started out as an engineer 2008 on a financial services, like on a trading desk for a pension fund. Within about six months, I realized that just writing code and maybe being dictated to as to what I should build wasn't really the passion. It was more about the, why am I building this thing? Who is it for? What? Why are we building this thing specifically? Could we be building something else? I'm getting the same request over and over again from different teams. Should we build a centralized thing? And it was that kind of led me to do more. I'd moved into the analysis side of things. So I was a BA on a grad scheme at Citibank, which was super great foundation for my career generally. And I understand now why grad schemes are so highly regarded because you have a 360 training across loads of different teams. You, you're in a mini team yourself, just graduates cross spread across. You learn how to network a bit better. So I started out there and did some analysis and then moved more into product. And then at, at Schroeder's, I was working, basically heading up an internal tool there. So working with fund managers, compliance people, fund managers assistants, like to build a fund management tool for Schroders to use or, or to evolve the tool they already had. And then at Fidelity, I basically did the same thing, but just a bit more senior and more, there was more work involved. It was more building our team and the tool and doing a bit of work during a transformation process. And then at 2018, I think I realized I was going to, I was going to end up going to another company, probably doing a year, maybe two years. And the company after that would probably be a year because I, I, I wanted to get hold of more projects, more varied projects and make impact a bit quicker. I think at traditional finance organizations, it's, there's reasons why there's red tape is usually used very negatively, but there's reasons why there's red tape, red tape stops. Tech generally stops. Give like, thanks. Yeah. Someone from running into a crime scene, for example, that's why police tape exists. Red tape exists. Um, stop it from going into an area that maybe someone's trying to organize, like budgets, for example. And that's why there's budget cycles at traditional organizations. You have to find the right amount of budget. You have to direct it in the right areas to align with strategy and mission, which we'll probably talk about later. So I was like, oh, I'm going to, I just want to work on more projects. And so I just left Fidelity, took a month off and spoke to some old colleagues and friends. I just reached out on LinkedIn. Does anyone want? or need any of my expertise because I think there's value in reasonably low cost as in not high runway per employee for early stage startups and maybe a month or two months of either fractional work or consulting work or specific project-based work to help you get from zero to one but help you progress and accelerate your journey a bit faster and I got a couple of clients I worked for my old company Schroeder's for six months and then 
snowballed from there, really. You just got loads of word, word of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth projects. I've not, I've never done any formal marketing advertising. And usually word of mouth, people just say, oh, we're looking for a good product person. We don't want anyone perm right now because we're not sure about what we want for those early stage companies. And then for the late stage companies, it's, we're looking to scale. We don't necessarily know how, what does good look like? Can we use your experience, come in, put scaling strategies together for us? Or can you help mentor one of our uh, product folks? Or can you help us refine our roadmap? Because it's, it, the internal people could do it and often they, they do, but sometimes it's good to get outside validation. That's why all these big, these huge consulting, these huge consulting businesses exist and operate, but I was trying to pitch myself as you get the good of the huge consulting agencies, the experience, the come in and do stuff expertise without the ridiculously high cost overhead, because they have to put thousands of people on a bench and loads of holiday pension, all that kind of stuff to factor in. And it's very specific expertise. It's fintech product. It's not product everywhere. It's really specified experience. So that's how it started. And then, yeah, it's taken me to this day. Good number of fintechs under the belt, loads of progress, loads of happy founders, loads of happy product people and teams, which is always good to hear. That's amazing. Yeah. So getting into topic, killer proposition. Yeah. Before we go into, I want to clarify in your eyes, what's the distinction between product and proposition? Yeah. Because yeah. sometimes think- it's not clear in people's minds. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a tricky one. I think traditionally, I think product and proposition is separate. Product is the thing that a customer buys or the thing that a customer uses and they'll, they'll go use it. Physical product or a digital product. And it fills a specific need, a set of needs. And then a proposition is more the description narrative around it. Why the, why a person should use that product? Why it's impactful? What are the product's values? I think now what I use it interchangeably sometimes. When I, usually when I talk about proposition, I'm talking more, more holistically and I include the product. So when I say proposition, I'm like, it includes the product, but it includes marketing, it includes the messaging, it includes the brand, it includes operations, it includes the logo, it includes the, like everything across the board. Yeah. When, when I say proposition, what I'm trying to be more like, it's not just the product. It's not just the code and the UI. It's. The product plus the marketing plus all of there could be support network around it could be a community could be an events structure all of it yeah all of it so purpose but yes exactly the message yeah the vision the mission the strategy all of that stuff comes on vibe yeah the the vibe of it yeah all of it comes off yeah under the proposition umbrella Product is the product, which is obviously a critical part of creating a business, creating a proposition. But <laughs> the product and the proposition, the pro- proposition is like one umbrella over across everything. Yeah. So then what makes a great proposition? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I Sometimes I'll use a one-liner. I'm going to use a one-liner now. So I'll usually say unique and innovative customer-centric, valuable, solve an ongoing problem and be clear. 
The last bit is something that's probably not as as valued in, in the process, from my experience. And the good killer propositions are clear. It's clear who they're for, clear what they do. It's, it's clear how they do it. And the messaging is, all of the messaging from top to bottom is clear. That's the one kind of overlapping thing I see. With the other things, sometimes it's they're interchangeable. Sometimes it's just, a, it's a really customer-centric product, but it's not super unique. Or it's a really unique product, but it's not maybe super innovative. It's a unique branding, but it's an existing product or uh, an existing concept, existing problems. But the killer propositions have all of those things and they're, and they're clear. So yeah, clear. So when I say, yeah, unique as in, unique and in, as innovative as in, it's not just a copycat of others and it solves problems in new ways. Customer-centric, designed with, with customers' needs and wants in mind. Valuable in that it gives a customer something back. Obviously, you're solving a problem, but usually the value is usually the value is either cost or time saving. That's those are the two common ones. It's all will save you, uh, will save you some time, will save you some cost or convenience. We can do this faster. That's what you'll see a lot of taglines on fintech websites. It's the fastest, sh- best, cheapest, most efficient. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's just the flip of what the value is for the customer. So it's, it's cost, it's time, it's convenience, energy, and, and emotion, maybe. It's a value in that sense, obviously, solve an ongoing problem and then be clear, clear as in all of that stuff previously is clear to the customer. How is it unique? Does it just look unique? How is it solving those problems? What is the value that the customer gets? And that's what you see the faster, clearer there tagline usually under the other headers so the clarity bit i think is something that the killer it's ones the, yeah and i'm so. probably going to use wise as an example a lot wise is is wise's proposition is very clear they've been very clear from the start their mission statement has been money without borders it's been a bit <laughs> longer i think it was money without borders instant convenient transparent and free but now i think it's just money without borders and I think that goes back to what you were, what you were saying earlier to. about your those seven points. I think you're seven points. Um, yeah, those seven then, points. Yeah, seven pain points. Seven pain because I think that's what they, that's what they're going for. That's what their mission is. One of one of those bullet points that you had was FX, and obviously that's where they focused. Yeah, that was their initial, that was their initial USB, and that was the initial big problem they're trying to solve. But I think they're moving into the next few tiers, which is. Money without borders, meaning we're going to just solve it for solve this problem for everyone, which is the problem that that you face, and I think I know others who face it, especially U.S. For me, it's where the the biggest impact is. U.S. citizens who come to the U.K. or go elsewhere, they have the biggest issue with investing. They have the biggest issue with sorting their tax yes. out. Yes, it's weird to me that's such a big issue. But again, maybe it goes back to our point. I'm not a U.S. citizen. It is weird to me because uh, on a day-to-day basis, but whenever I say to a US friend, oh, why don't you just invest here? Or why don't you put money in an ISA? Or why don't you put your money there? They're like, no, it's too complicated. Because, yeah, it's, exactly, yeah. it's double taxation and this double. and the other. It's My yeah. friends do the same thing. It's no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think wise nail it for me. 
uh, and the clarity, they nail the clarity, which is, which I think is what you want. But like Coinbase, I think Coinbase is really good at that as well. I think Monzo's really good at, I'd say even Amex is good at that. I think they're pretty clear about what they offer. Um, they don't hide, the fees are pretty clear, because, the offering is pretty clear. Because if you think about it, like if someone asks you, why should I use this product or this fintech? You yeah. need to be able to say without a doubt because of this. And the only reason why you say because of this is because they have a killer proposition. But not only that, they are able to communicate it in a really concise way, easy to remember. It. And it's like, oh yeah, it's the best, blah, 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 whatever is it that the product may be. But yeah, uh, yeah it's about clarity exactly. so that then you can communicate it. Therefore, everyone understands. Yeah. So, now that we have defined what a great proposition is, let's say we are a product team in a big bank or a small fintech, whatever. How do we get to that clarity of saying, yeah, this is what we're building? Yeah. I mean, I, I think foundationally it starts, usually it starts with an idea. Like it starts with an idea or a, or a hypothesis of an idea. So it's, mm -hmm. I think this, and here's why. And then the next step is checking, proving, researching the hypothesis. So it's discovery, finding out what's the issue we're trying to solve, who are we trying to solve it for, why are we trying to solve it, what are the competitors, what does the market look like? So it's doing all of that research. And in terms of, we're, we're talking step-by-step -step processes, research, distilling the research, Formulating a new hypothesis or proving an already an already presumed one. I think there's seven real big pain points for for expats or people from the US traveling moving to the UK. Here's a lot of research to prove why each of these points exist. Here's here's some problem statements. Maybe jobs to be done. Identifying a point of differentiation, creating a brand, creating some journeys, creating a prototype, and then testing that proposition with the customers that you've already identified. That's that for me, that's like a standard cookie. Everyone, most product people know that's how you do it. You usually what happens is there's like slight deviations. You might get to the hypothesis point and go, we still don't know. We still have no clue if this product's going to work or not based on discovery. And you'll go back and go, do we need to change our hypothesis? Do we need to redo discovery? Do we need to ask more people? A, more, a wider breadth of people, more questions. Do we need to do deeper competitor analysis? Do we need to do deeper market analysis? So there's usually, at each step, there's usually like a, a dive in or a kind of step out and a you know, review of, e of each stage. So yeah, that's simple. I think that's simple. It's like, usually it's idea, discover, design, build, and then maybe mini launch, then repeat. But yeah. It, it's different for different organizations. Yes. And what it made me think is, you're right. That's the process that if you've been in product for a bit, it's, yeah, that's what you do. Yet, even though it's the basic process, not everyone gets it right. I don't think it's like, why not? And it may be that it's the last thing that you said, that it's repeat. Or maybe it's like, we don't take the time to step back what why do you think we may not get it right 
I don't think it's built. I, I don't think it's usually built into the process to step back and review. I think product people will, net, will, will naturally try and do that work. But I think it's partially that. And I think it's partially the assumptions. Sometimes the ideation bit, like the, the initial, I think this because this, that comes from someone who feels it so strongly that it doesn't really, like you do discovery, but it doesn't really matter. Like you do discovery as almost like a checkbook exercise. Oh, we have to do discovery because of this. Or what people would do is like, here's an idea. We'll jump to product strategy. Here's an idea. Here's a strategy around the product based on competitors' features, based on what I think the problem is. And then you create a strategy and then you might do discovery afterwards. And by that point, you would have done the strategy. And again, it comes from someone or the founders or like a, a lead or a project sponsor who's already said, this is the problem that we need to sort out. And it's very difficult sometimes to go back and go, no, no, it's not. We've done a load of research. That's not really the problem. The underlying problem is this. There's a, a, bit, a bigger organization. We've already decided. <laughs> we've already yes. decided, allocated the budget. This is the solution we're going to build. We've really blocked out resources. And that, that kind of less stop and reflect time is not baked in. I get why. Like, at bigger organizations, I get why. Again, yeah. it goes back to red tape, goes back to budgets and cycles and at a really high level strategy and the high level strategy trying to precipitate down to different teams. Um, but at smaller organizations, I, I don't think. I think it's very difficult to get away with it, small organizations, because you run out of runway really fast if you take a yeah. proposition to market that doesn't land, that doesn't have adoption. Funding Funders will look at user growth, adoption, multiplication rates over time, and they go, you haven't got the adoption that we expect. doesn't look like it's sticky. Um, you can't, at startups, early stage startups, you can't really get away with it because you just you just fall off. Yeah. So how do you avoid getting into that trap of, hey, we did this work, we came up with this proposition, we did some build, we built something, we tested, but it's not sticky because people are used to using WISE, for example, or whatever yeah. in any category, right? Like how, how do founders then can go around the challenge that it's, yeah, we did it properly. We validated the the problem statement, but it's still not sticky yeah. enough I mean, for investors. Yes, sticky enough for investors. I guess sometimes it's a separate conversation. I think this. I think there is an art of founder to investor discussion. Some founders are really great at just. Some founders are great at just raising money from investors yeah. because they just believe in what they've done. Or yeah, they just. Or they've got track record in it. Or they've got a network of people who are willing to just fund them. So I, I think it's more of pr proving, speaking to customers and trying to understand, like going back to those customers and understanding why it's not sticky. Again, as part of the, as part of product launch, part of that design, build and launch process, I don't think enough people build in success metrics or, and, and markers for success in the product. So really, if you've done some discovery and you're saying, this is the problem, we've got problems A, B, C, and D. As part of those problems and then the features that you build off the back of those problems, which could be trying to make FX faster so we make it clearer. And we, when you swap from euros to GBP, we put the rate right there. We compare it to other rates and we say this is the cheapest. 
if you're doing all of that stuff, you should also measure it. Measure those solutions A, B, C, and D. Here are the metrics we're going to attach to them. We want X number of people to go through this journey. We want X number of people to sign up to this thing. So you have to first build in the metrics to figure out if it's sticky or not. And then if it's not sticky, you can try and drill down. What area is it not sticky? It could be the onboarding is so bad that the reason it's not sticky is that you expect 10% of customers to sign up, but only 10 customers are coming up, coming through the onboarding route. So you get one customer a month. Could be that. But without those metrics, without the understanding, without speaking to customers on a regular basis, post, like during the beta phase. And again, that also means building a community as part of that, the beta testing. It also means being able to go speak to customers. You can't just give a customer a product and then two months later go, tell us your thoughts because they'll be like, you gave me the product and then it's been two months and I've not heard anything from you. So why, yeah. like, why do you, you have to build some of that, but the trust, you have to build some of the kind of connection with a customer, build a community. And then that gives you the leeway to go ask, here's a product. What did you think? And then they might say, look wasn't really for me because of this and this, or I use this feature, but I didn't use any of the other no of this. Yeah. And you're like, okay. Or I use these other competitors. Pro, uh, it, exactly. All the other competitors is faster and cheaper. And they're like, okay, that maybe it's a problem with our positioning and our clarity because we're not designed to be faster or cheaper. We're designed to be more convenient, a lot clearer, we're more expensive. It's a more premium product, but you get more service out of it. So it could be a problem around clarity. But speaking yeah. to customers, quantitative, qualitative feedback, that should remove the stickiness or, or at least give you more of an understanding a of path. It, pathway, like an exit path or, right, we need to pivot. Like one, the, the four features we thought were going to land based on discovery are not landing. That could be time. That could be like the landscape's changed. It takes you know, six months to build a product usually minimum. That could just be time collapsed, the, the landscape has changed, or it could be, we just didn't build it in the right way. We need to reframe that. Or it could just be pivot. Look, these three features that we thought were amazing are actually not great. This one that we thought was rubbish is actually the one that everyone's using the most. Why? Figure out why, expand on it, go in that direction. I like that. So it's very iterative. And I think what I've seen in some fintechs is Sometimes we build something and say, yeah, yeah, we'll iterate. We'll change it in the future. But that doesn't happen. <laughs> it's more of a you jump from one feature to the other without really taking time to understand how is it that customers are using it and therefore iterating, which is a challenge. Yeah. 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 It's a challenge. It's a challenge at all stages, but it's especially a challenge if you build without that at the start and you try and implement it later. So if you've done, if you've got an idea, you build it, you don't really do any, you do a bit of customer research, very hands off. You don't build a community around stuff. You take it to market. You, know, you might get some customers. You start, you grow slowly. And then you want to get more of an understanding of your customer base. And you're like, oh, I, I have none of these processes in place. I have to build, I've got to build a metrics framework. I have to stand, map out all of the customer journeys, figure out what's important at each stage, link that back to the strategy and the roadmap, figure out what the key jobs to be done are. How do I like build surveys, build community, 
it's a lot more strenuous, time-consuming, expensive to do that later on. You could you can always do it very light touch early on and then expand on it over time, but you can't. It's more expensive to pause. Like, we'll do it later, yeah, and then go back and try and retrofit everything. Ask any banking transformation project head. Is it more? Is it easier to build everything from the start, white paper, map it out with all this vision, or is it easier to try and retrofit and move components no. around while the product is live? That's a lot harder, and it's a lot more expensive. Yes, and especially because the culture is already set. So not only the product is built, but like the culture, not only the product, but the company as such, it's already set to work yeah. in a certain way. And now you're trying to disrupt people's ways of working, and it's like, why? Yeah, <laughs> Star well, usually, usually it takes us. It usually takes us six days to do this. Or oh, we can get this done in a sprint. Now we have to do this. Now we have to do customer feedback and outreach and validation. And it's, yeah, it takes longer because we have to do this now. And, and like you said, affects people's ways of working. It, you do have to start looking at some of those processes and going, now a sprint isn't two weeks, a sprint is three weeks because we have to do we have to do some of this research and validation and we have to do user testing. Um, what happens is usually what happens is when a company grows from big or small to medium to big, they have to do that anyway because they're a bigger organization. They have more customers. So they can't be as disruptive. They can't just go put features out, see if it lands, and then reverse them, which is what some people do, which is a fine way of doing it. It's like a live A-B test, deploy it, reverse it. But it's, again, once you're at that big stage and you've got 100,000 customers, you can't just put something live and then reverse it because 100,000 people are impacted. When it's 100 people and you could DM them and go, we're putting this live, let's know what you think. If it's rubbish, we'll just reverse it, fine. When it's 100,000 customers, you need robust processes in place to test it, get the feedback on it. Again, A-B testing is a great way of doing it. Or even just like toe in the wall litmus testing. Here's a mock-up of this feature. Here's, here's a video of it. What do you think? What's your initial thoughts? Here's a user journey. We're just going to do testing. It's not live. It's just you know, prototype user journey. Walk people through it. Where are the frustrations? But like you said, you have to build that into the process. And if you retrofit it, people's discovery timelines push out, design timelines push out because they have to build a mini prototype now. Engineering, they have to build a mini prototype. All of this stuff is impacted. Like culture is such an important thing when it comes to building products and innovation as such. How do you think we can build a culture that drives innovation? the right mindset that's yeah it's challenging yeah it is challenging i think a, a lot of it's i think it's challenging because a lot of the time the culture come comes from the top so you naturally inherit you naturally inherit culture founders c-suite heads off so as you grow or hiring is really important i guess that's that's why team fit is more important at those but I'm not saying more important, but it's vitally important at those Maybe. senior levels because it, yes. it, it all precipitates down. You know, I think that, that's maybe why lots of people will bring in people they know at heads of and senior levels because not necessarily about, I'm trying to bring my friend in. It's more, I know this person's going to fit in with the existing culture that we have. 
it's not a test, it's not an experiment. I worked with them before. I know they're going to come in and do this and this, and I know they do it in a certain way. That's what we need. And, and sometimes that, that in itself kind of fosters that innovation culture. But because it comes from the top, it's very difficult. I think the people at the top have a, a responsibility to put frameworks and processes in place to allow for that innovation to happen. Like I said, ways of working that can be blown out if you start implementing this stuff, but you have to bake in the time for people to have the right tools, processes, frameworks to be able to just come up with ideas and experiment with them. Um, and I think often that's what's missing because if you're working a 12 hour day, you don't have, you don't have time or you don't you have the emotional, physical energy to go, oh, I thought about this idea that I had. I'm going to go test it now. I'm going to, I'm going to write like a, a product brief. I'm going to ask some customers some questions about this idea that I've got. You don't have the time and you probably, to be honest, don't really care if you can write specs for, for a week. And for something that it's not going to be done. Yeah. For something that's not going to be done. So you, I think you need to feel like I have the time and space to do it, which again is giving everyone tools, transparency over strategy. Because again, it could innovation, as long as it's tied to the strategy, I think senior leaders are like, they're very welcoming of it. But again, they need to put the process frameworks and build the space for everyone to basically come up with innovative ideas. But I think the big thing is, I think one of your previous pods you were talking about Celebrating mm. mini wins. Yes. So I would flip that around and say, obviously celebrate mini wins, but also don't punish mini failures. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're innovate, you're inevitably going to fail at some point. Yep. It depends on the scale. Obviously you don't say, you don't put some newbie in charge of wises head of FX, product stream, and let them do whatever they want. But you might say, oh, that's a, that's a great idea as part of the product. Why don't we experiment with that? But you have to give people the, the kind of scope and space to fail and then not punish them for failing, but rather reward the, the kind of pursuit of something different and innovative. Sounds a bit cheesy, to be honest. But it's, yeah, it, it's, it needs to be there. I think that people are sometimes scared of innovating or scared to do something because they think, oh, my boss, I have you, my boss is going to be happy that I'm spending four hours on this thing. Or, oh, we don't think so-and-so is going to like appreciate me building this back out. Like engineering team already slammed. Like head of so-and-so is already bit. I think you, you need to have support from seniors to be able to fail and not be cast, get punished for it. Create the space them be it's psychological safety basically but it's yeah. psychological safety to go and explore this idea on top of everything that you have that everything everyone is swamped yeah. but still yeah. you're like but i feel okay for me to go and explore this idea that i wanted to on top of all my work and i feel that my boss is not going to be like hey but why aren't you working on this yeah. 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 And if, if it didn't work out, you were like, like, was just exploring. Yeah. I, I, I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're exploring and now we know it doesn't work. Or now we know it's like, it's not the right time. It's not going to work now. It's not going to work for this customer base. Let's take the outcomes. Let's take the insights from it. We could reuse it. Maybe it's just, maybe it's like, like Vine five, I think it was five second or 10 second videos. The problem with Vine was more timing than anything else. I think people weren't used to short form videos and then five years later, Instagram comes out and then 30 second videos are all, all the range. So sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's, it just doesn't work for the right demographic. So you have to allow people to fail and maybe take the insights and move on. And again, you, you, I think people, parents, maybe kind of treat children and like children could have the time and face to experiment. And if they found at something, you won't go, oh, you failed. What are you doing? You won't, you never castigate or punish a child for trying to do something creative. But sometimes in the workplace, that does happen because it's, oh, you should be doing this instead. You should be doing that instead. But a child creates Da Vinci after they've done some of their homework. You won't go, oh, we got, well, I should have done your homework. You would go, oh, this is amazing. This is so cool. Or, oh, yeah. wow, it's such a great job exploring this new thing. But it doesn't happen in a professional workplace. It should. Yes, it should. And it's making me think. One, especially now that we work remotely, like when no one is back to the office five days a week. So most companies are remote, some sorts of remote. It's more difficult to create that experience because there many people that are back at home. But there is a touch point that I'm assuming most companies have that it's the weekly team meeting, let's say. How? Does you run a meeting such that it creates that space for innovation? Yeah. Again, I think well, that's, <laughs> that's a tough question. That's, yeah, it's a tough question. And again, I think everyone needs the, firstly, every team should be represented in those weekly team meetings. I think I've, I've been at places where sometimes different teams aren't or teams don't see the value in the weekly team meeting. So it, it's get giving everyone the opportunity and every, every team should be present, but also showing all of those teams why you should be there because you learn about what other teams are doing, initiatives, strategy from top level, like senior leadership. And I, I think sometimes people use those meetings as an excuse to get reports and updates from everyone. Oh, I'm the CEO, I'm the founder, I'm the head of this, I'm the senior person of this. Or, this meeting is just for me to figure out what, what everyone's doing. Like, that's not... It, it should be both ways. It's a two-way senior leadership should be explaining. Here's what's happened this week. Here's what we're working on. Here are our key, key client engagements. Here are our key, like here's the conference I'm off to. I'll be speaking about this. And here's some product innovation stuff. And then other teams can, can contribute. And I think, again, it comes top down. I think if senior leadership are doing that and going, oh, we're going to try do, going to try this, or we're doing this experiment. Let me know what you think. I think that that will, again, that just naturally creates space um, for others to do it and then block it out. Part of the, every team's agenda, product engineering, design, marketing, ops is last bullet point. What are you doing that's not, what are you doing that's not standard this week? What are you doing that's completely different to what you're doing last week or the week before? And if the answer every week is nothing, then if you're perfect, doing the same thing every day. Yeah. If you're a sales team and you're exceeding your numbers every single week, 
that's fine. We're not doing anything different. We don't need to. We're, do- we're, we're doing everything we need to be doing. But if your marketing team, your engagement is dropping off or stagnant or, or it's not as high or steep as it should be, then if you're doing the same thing every week, then you can expect exactly the same output unless something drastic happens in the market and every other competitor in your space falls off and, and you know, becomes bankrupt. Love that because in summary, it is senior leadership to lead with example, not by saying it's, Hey, yeah. we are doing different. We're doing these. Yeah. We failed these. We tried these and it didn't work. And then it, that yeah. gives permission to everyone else. It, yeah. To go and do it. Spot on. Yeah. It, it gives permission. It, it's un, It can be said, but it's unsaid permission look i'm doing it and i'm saying you should do it but i'm going to do it first like if you do a cold like usually those team building exercises if you do a cold walk there's like coals and the hot fire coals and someone runs across it usually no one will do it until someone goes first and if your senior leadership person does it first then you're like okay well i feel a responsibility to go do it as well i want to They've done it. Why can't I do it? I want to try and I want to try something different. I want to try something new. Yeah, but yeah, it's not fair. Throwing everything on senior leadership and founders and C-suite, but it's again, it's just natural. It's it kind of comes from Yeah, literally the word leader. So usually you look at them, and they're the person that that you look at as an example. So it is just natural that, that kind of that's where it's that's where a lot of the innovation culture. Is stems from you can do it bottom up and you can influence leaders and then influence everyone else but mm-hmm. a lot more difficult a lot more time consuming um, yeah i love this conversation so where can we find more about you more about me website bitsall.co.uk linkedin uh type in joshua you might see a bit of a slimmer version of my profile picture <laughs> maybe one with less uh, yeah. foliage yeah. around the beard yeah linkedin uh, website i write a newsletter every couple of weeks as well mm-hmm. called fintech r and r it's not pirates nothing to do with pirates first a play on rest and relaxation but also retrospective and refinement so it's a oh, kind cool. of, yeah it's like a retro refinement of fintech topic i've been thinking about every couple of weeks deep dives into specific things look at buy now pay later open banking payments process sme banking all that kind of stuff yeah from a all from a product product lens yeah those are the main three places i'm on twitter as well but we're not calling it twitter nowadays so i'm not really active on it (laughs) yeah that's where you can find me awesome and then one more question, just to close the episode. Yeah. If you were to change one thing, just one thing in fintech that can make life of customers, members of staff, and shareholders better, what could you change? One thing. Okay. One so thing. I'm going to say that every single person at the organization has to speak to one of their customers at least once a year. And that's what I would change. And it would be like everyone, every single person. 
sometimes not feasible if you're working at Safety Bank, if you're working at HSBC. Yeah, sometimes it's not feasible, but like the attempt to try to speak to a customer and try and understand how they use the specific product, what the pain points are. It could be a check-in call that says, yep, I love it. It's brilliant. And then great, but bridge the gap. So I don't think I don't think everyone speaks to their customers. I think maybe sometimes founders do. Product team will usually just naturally do customer success. Yes, but often the linchpin of the organization, and you usually go to that team to be like, "Oh, what customers can say about this? Or what are they yes. complain about? Oh, what's the issue here? What's good about the product?" And you'll go through them, but it's often weighted on them, and it shouldn't be. It should be across the organization. It's their responsibility to maybe gather and collate and understand. But everyone should be speaking to customers. Everyone should know on the pulse of what customers are, are feeling, what they need, what they don't need, what they like and what they don't like. Because you I just said one thing. So that's my one thing. Yes. I think that is the one thing that can really impact how we do venture fintech is having every single one in the organization talking to customers at least once a year. Yeah. Just once a year. Just once. Should it be feasible? could be New Year's Eve when, to be honest, there's not much work on. Love it. Thank you, Jazz. Awesome. It's been an amazing uh, episode. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for Thank having me, Thank you, Monica. everyone. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jazz. See you, everyone, Thank you. next week. Ciao.